Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Reagan Shriver. Reagan is an associate professor of practice at the University of Tennessee College of Social Work as well as the director of the MSSW program, Knoxville campus, and the chair of the Forensic Social Work Certification Program, where he teaches clinical and leadership courses in the MSSW program. He also serves as a special assistant to the president of the Catholic Charities USA. In this role, he takes part in a team process to develop integrated health programs within their network. Reagan, it's so nice to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. You know, we've had a couple of podcasts together, and I would encourage our listeners to go back and check it out. It was about trauma, and it was such a good podcast, and the the insights you brought were great. And I am equally excited about our topic today, which is around shame. And this is something that is such a fundamental part of our lives, typically unknown, but it's such a fundamental part and kind of a foundational piece of our lives. And I'm excited to talk about it today and have you shed some light on this whole concept, this construct of shame in our life. So as we start out today, one, welcome. Secondly, would you start out with giving us kind of a foundation, kind of a foundational understanding of what you know and for shame to be in our lives? Thank you. Thank you so much, Graham. For, I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation, actually, because I know that you've got a lot of insights as well. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to kind of bounce it back and forth and see what you think Thank about you. or react to what I'm, I'm thinking too. I am too. It's interesting. The first thing I feel that I learned about shame or, you know, like in school, which then always drew me back to my own experiences in my own life and friendships and family and all that, I think like was this distinction between shame and guilt. And I know that's yeah. something that we're going to dive into a little bit more, but I feel about the, that concept that shame is more of a, of a question of looking at my own view of self, like who yeah. I am, like not what I do. So it's more like I view myself, and I think that when we talk about shame, like the limitations or the boundaries or the restrictions on myself, and I think that there can be, a, I don't know what you, how you would experience this, but maybe a more, I don't know if I would use the full word healthy, but maybe a way that is functional or serves a function for us that could be within the realm of shame. But then if we think about shame on the end that's unhealthy or the end that's more damaging to us, it's when we've limited ourselves or or restricted ourselves or we are avoiding behavior. And there's almost this cycle of shame and how we just view ourselves and overly view self as negative and unworthy. And that that negative element of of shame is such a shrouded in secrecy and and hidden sort of concept that those are. So that's just like kind of a high level, just off the top of my head, what what first comes to mind when I think about the concept of shame. Well, let's say we hold that real quick. I think that's an important distinction because Peter and I were talking about this before the show, and we oftentimes link together guilt and shame as being the same thing, but they're not. And what what I so appreciate about what you're saying here is guilt is what I do. Shame is who I am. Mm-hmm. And we oftentimes think, well, maybe shame is, you know, if you look up definitions, it says, well, it's a feeling of embarrassment or humiliation that can arise in relationship to a perception of having done something dishonorable or immoral or proper. Yes. Yeah, it is. But it becomes more personal. It's not only did I, did I do those things, but if you're, if we're going with your definition, which I think is correct, I'm doing those things because of who I am fundamentally, aren't I? Mm-hmm. 
I think I've heard of referred to as sister emotions that that guilt and shame that they're sort of sister emotions. But then I think that guilt is more of an approach behavior yields an approach behavior. Say like mm-hmm. guilt. I realize I've done something bad. Like I said something hurtful to you, right. and then I feel I'm motivated to do something to correct the relationship. So yeah. there is a real guilt where I'm really like, okay, I feel, I feel guilty. I want to correct the relationship and try to fix the harm that I've caused by something mean that I said. But there's also kind of a false guilt too, where I feel guilty for everything, you know, everything that I'm doing, which is more. Okay. But it is kind of an approach behavior, whereas shame is more of an avoidant behavior that I'm ashamed of who I am. And I don't want other people to know that there's this inside of me, that this thing that I hid or that I don't like or this element. So it becomes hidden. Brene Brown put it, I kind of like this, you know, like her, that she she said that if you put shame in a Petri dish and you add secrecy and silence and judgment, the thing is going to go crazy. But then yeah. if you if you put it in another Petri dish and add maybe some empathy where you're able to invite other people into this experience, then maybe that that will stunt the growth of the shame. I like You know, that. it's interesting. Yeah, I, I really like, I appreciate you bringing her into this. She's like the guru, isn't she, of shame? And she also talks about how the antidote for shame is vulnerability. And that's what you're talking about here is if we bring people into something that is typically shrouded or secrecy, because if it's who I am, I'm afraid to let you know that mm-hmm. you might do all kinds of things. You might judge me about it. You might leave me, you might condemn, whatever. And I'm so afraid to bring that in that I keep it hidden. So that secrecy is really a key piece of shame, isn't it? It is. I feel that this thing about keeping it secret can yield to like, sometimes I look around at people or even people like in my life or friendships or a little bit myself. I want to create this, this thing, this image Oh, look, I'm an associate professor, you know, oh, wow. You know, that, like I've got this thing out, out here that I can right. really structure my life around, but then really what's inside of me, I see myself as a, as a creep or as a dummy or whatever yeah. the things I tell myself. And then, but then I've got this external view and then it's, I've kept this internal thing secret. So yes. I just work so hard to have this external image. And then it's just scary to let somebody in. And I think like that yeah. Brene Brown is onto something in that, if I was able to sit, let someone into that that thing that I see that I'm a d- dummy or whatever I say about myself, and then hear it from somebody else that I, I don't think that's dumb. I feel it's the right. same thing, and I have that. It challenges that me. paradigm, doesn't it? I mean, it challenges that paradigm that we hold that I am. And so when we have that mirrored back to us, that's part of a healing process we're going to get to later. But that's the part of bringing it out of that secrecy and through vulnerability and empathy like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That's a step towards beginning to shift that. Yeah. Hey, I want to talk about... As you're working with folks, how, how do you know that maybe there's some really shame-based things going on? How do you notice it? I have an example, like a, so just a quick example of yeah, when, me. so I used to do group therapy with persons that had disordered eating, like anorexia and bulimia were specifically the two things that we were treating. And so I remember this one time, this woman, she did not want to sit in a chair. Everyone came in and took a chair and sat on it. Well, she said she just insisted on sitting on the floor. She didn't really want a chair. And, you know, because it was one of her first times at the, okay, well, that's, that's all right. Come to find out in the group process that she didn't feel that she didn't deserve a chair, basically, yes. but used sort of like this image of, oh, I, I want to be humble. I don't want to take the chair from anybody else. But really this message that she had inside herself was, I don't deserve the chair. So I feel that through process of working through it, that she eventually was able to sit in a chair and talk about being a part of everyone else and how everyone else had felt some of those same things like that they didn't deserve the chair. I just feel like that's one little example, which may be a little bit kind of extreme to notice what are we doing to ourselves to sort of like affirm that feeling of I'm not worthy or I don't deserve or whatever. And it can come out in all kinds of different ways. I think it could come out in perfectionism. 
It can come out in workaholism. It can come out in like my extreme drive to be a, a good athlete or a good professor or a good podcast deliverer, whatever, whatever it is. I think that those things, and it's interesting, it's hard to find. Yes. I think, I think you're nailing something that I think is really, really key. And I'm going to maybe kind of frame it for us just as a, as a way to kind of illustrate and, and hold it. I think most shame-based messages are, I am, and then we fill in the blank with whatever it may be. I think most of our shame is unconscious. And I think what we do, we have compensatory behaviors unknowingly mm -hmm. that develop from a, typically a very early age mm -hmm. that set up a course in our lives that everything we do is unconsciously driven by trying to avoid feeling that I am shame-based message and to keep others from discovering it about us as well. So you're talking about this woman who, through the eating disorder and all that goes into that, profoundly shame-based typically with eating disorder, mm -hmm. she's saying unknowingly, I am undeserving. I don't deserve. Mm -hmm. That I am statement governs everything, even the chair that she sits in or chooses not to, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. You know, I feel about this a little bit like when we talk about trauma, that the behavioral response or the, the neurological response to trauma is that a system that's in place that gets overwhelmed. And I feel that shame can kind of be the same thing. The other day I was talking to a couple of friends and I said, hey, like I'm going to be on a podcast. What do you all think shame is if I just bounce it out to you guys, just some friends? And one guy said, you know, there's not enough healthy shame these days, which I was like, what? You know, but then I, we kind of talked it through. And I, I kind of had this image of that there needs to be some element of shame to realize like when a little child realizes that they can't run out into the middle of the road, that that's a limitation that they have. Or, you know, that I, as a professor at the school of social work, I can't teach the statistics classes because I just, that's not my area. I have a limitation there. But then I think the bummer is that when the system gets overwhelmed again, that, 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 that oh, I get over-regulated and realize I can't run out in the middle of the road, but I also don't have a voice to say how I feel about something. And I'm not worthy of sitting in a chair or I'm not worthy to yeah. teach any classes or, or whatever that is. It's like this overwhelmed experience of negativity or an inadequacy. Yeah. It's gone too yeah. far. If we were to take a maybe swing at something here, what if there's a healthy shame? Let's just kind of frame it as that. And maybe there's a, there's a part where we could say maybe there's something even survival based about it that we've learned you know not to run in front of the car we've learned not to do certain things where i want to honor my family i i want to have good character and so maybe that it, that functions as a way as kind of a preventative and kind of helps me stay in my lane in healthy ways mm -hmm. what we're talking about here is when it goes south when it becomes mm -hmm. secretive and 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 owned and all of our lives gets driven by this you're also talking i want to jump in here something you mentioned is really cool there there's a neurological piece to this too something's happening at that level too isn't it mm -hmm. express that to us and, and 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 kind of share with us what's going on at that level as well so just to try to put it in, in ways that I can understand it, because the brain and the nervous system is so complicated and there's so much we still don't even know. But to think about that when we are experiencing that sort of that heightened or experience of shame, I've, yeah. I've got to hide behind this or I've got to close myself down or whatever it is, that, yeah. that there's this neurological response of the, the fight or flight that the sympathetic nervous system becomes enacted. And then when the sympathetic nervous system, which is associated with fight, flight, and freeze, that we become sort of stuck in that. And then this little loop inside our body gets a little bit broken. And the parasympathetic, which is the other side of the house, which is trying to calm us down, yeah. can't do its thing. So we're sort of 
always in this like a tire stuck, you're rolling and rolling the tires, but we can't go anywhere. So you think about that, that like a lot of times in shame that we feel that we want to just disappear, that, that we want to disappear. Mm -hmm. So that fight or flight, the image mm -hmm. of flight. So I've learned I need to just flee. I need to disappear, whatever, whatever yeah. I need to do to make myself disappear. Yeah. That becomes the key. That's and then so I think good. that freeze thing too, that that's, which is another element of that, of that, that sympathetic nervous system aspect. And that, that, that freeze that I'm stuck in a situation, I'm stuck and I have no other options. And, and so that's a shame experience as well. So it really yeah. is physiological. It There's really a couple is. Of other things. I, no, I think you're right. I think what we know from MRIs, if, if you can take an MRI of somebody who is activated in that fight or flight state, their brain is literally, you can see it lit up mm -hmm. and it, at its best, it's adaptive. I, I've, I've, I've always liked the, you know, the fight or flight freeze. I've always, I've always added fade. And that's kind of that, like the invisible where the animal tries to blend in, you know, with it, with the environment and kind of fade into it. So they can't be seen. Yeah. So they freeze, but they try and fade or become invisible and blend in. So no attention is drawn to them. And that's mm -hmm. that avoidant piece, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That that's yes. a part where we try and hide, but it is literally at a neurological level. And I believe it's wired early on those things that, you know, fire together, wire together. And if at a neurological level, if things are shame-based early on, Peter and I were talking about this early on, the, the messages we hear growing up, you know, hey, you're stupid, or what, what, what were you thinking, you know, or what makes you think you deserve to have that? These little things that maybe even in parenting, we don't recognize that are being said or done, they get anchored in somebody, don't they? And they become that person's I am statement. Maybe I'm not deserving. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm not worth it. Maybe there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Those are powerful messages. Sure are. That the, I mean, the old, you ought to be ashamed. Yes. <laughs> and then, You're right. We even tell someone. people. Yeah, we even tell them, this is what you ought to be feeling. So go ahead and feel it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. I've got a thousand things that went through my head. Yeah, go. But one is that the, the idea of, well, first, this insula, it's a little part in your brain that's up in the, in the frontal part of the brain up there in the, in the limbic system area, the insula. And if you think about that, what's going on there? That gets larger in boys that experience lots of shame, but gets mm. smaller in girls as they grow and, and they've experienced shaming behavior, shaming experiences, that type of thing. I think that's fascinating because how male, female, the, the, the two sexes can respond a little bit differently. But that insula is something that is a, it's an alert that causes us to focus on self that we're, the insula is, is, it makes us kind of more aware of, am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I, what, what, like, what am I experiencing? That's what the insula does is sort of put focus on the self. And I think that's the struggle with shame is that we're so insecure or so inadequate that I end up focusing so much on myself and my inadequacies yeah. and that aspect. So here it is, this brain structure is sort okay. of in a way is forcing ourselves to just focus on ourselves. Yeah. And then we lose connection with other people. We lose opportunities because I'm just so concerned with my own shame or my own limitations. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Continuing education is both a requirement and a learning opportunity, but finding the right CE provider can be challenging. AATBS, a triad company, offers continuing education for psychologists, social workers, marriage and family therapists, counselors, and behavior analysts. CE courses are available both individually and as part of our new All Access Pass. All Access Pass provides a library of over 250 unique courses. That's more than 800 hours of CEs, with new courses being added every month. As a special offer, Behavioral Health Today listeners can save 15% on CE purchases. 
Visit us at aatbs.com bht and enter promo code bht15 during checkout. That's aatbs.com bht. Check out our library and check off your CE requirements today. I love what you're saying right now about how it impacts us and how our world becomes smaller and more narrower and more controlled. Let's get into that, but let me back it up a bit and kind of weave us into something here. So ideally, when we're growing up, our environmental conditions with our caregivers has, you know, parenting that's congruent, there's empathy, there's attunement, there's healthy mirroring that takes place, there's no severe traumas, and the love that we receive from our parents is kind of an unconditional need-free love on their part. But because we're raised by humans <laughs> and the fact that no one's perfect in their parenting, what if there is, I'm saying this rhetorically, what if there's a lack of emotional connection or what if there's a lack of emotional attunement mm -hmm. on the parent's part? Or what if the parents don't, you know, kind of prize us or have a genuine care for us? So there's a lack of empathy or no real positive mirroring. What if some of the mirroring is actually what you said earlier? You, you know, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. What's that some mirroring or what if there's a conditional love or worth or there are judgments? Or maybe what if there, you said earlier, and I don't think it was a slip, trauma and shame go together. So what if there's trauma, whether it's a big T trauma of, you know, major boundaries being crossed or, you know, or maybe what if it's just what we kind of refer to as a, a little T trauma, no less severe, but it's maybe more relational based, like what I'm talking about right now, just mm -hmm. in the exchange back and forth, because children need to create meaning for their experiences, don't they? They need to have a meaning so then they can control it in some ways. But little do we know that the meaning we're assigning to it, we're doing it unconsciously, but it becomes the foundational organization for how we go through life. Like the woman you talked about in the group, I'm going through life feeling undeserving and everything that I do, everything that I do is organized by that unconsciously. I think it does. It sort of begins almost day one. If you think about it, like if I come out, of uterus or whatever, and I'm, 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 I'm so hungry or whatever, whatever emotion I'm experiencing, or I, I, I come out and I'm, I'm afraid for whatever. But I think if somebody's there to say, I'm going to validate your fear or your sadness, or, you know, you're crying and to kind of like my face is in tune with what you're saying and with your, your crying and stuff, or later on I get hungry. And so somebody meets that need or I'm cold and somebody tries to address that need by warming me up then all I'm validated. Somebody yeah. out there gets me. But yes. then if I'm left to my own design, like I'm crying and screaming, gee, I don't feel got <laughs> like exactly. nobody gets me. I'm screaming and crying here and nobody's doing anything. So therefore I must be invalidated. My emotions, my communication of my emotions must be invalidated. And I just think that's a, a strong foundation for just some of this shame experience of, of, of self. That is such a great description. I'm not sure if you've ever seen it. Have you ever watched the video? It's on YouTube for our listeners as well. It's called the Still Faced, S-T-I-L-L, Still Faced Experience. It is a hard video to watch, but it, it's, it's illustrating the very thing you're talking about right here. There's a child kind of in a high chair and a mom that's, you know, the child's back and forth, a young child in a high chair. I don't know how many months old, but the child's kind of engaging and, and the mom is mirroring back the exact emotions and the child's just engaged and the world is good. And, and also the mom turns around and then turns back around and the mom has a still face mm -hmm. with no expression at all. And the child doesn't quite get it at first. It kind of goes, well, what's going on? And then the child begins to get a little bit more animated, more animated, trying to get the mom to engage. And the mom does it. And the child 
begin to scream and begin to get afraid. Basically, if it goes to an extreme, we call that kind of a, like a psychic annihilation where we just cannot tolerate that mm-hmm. experience. But it's what you're describing. Mm-hmm. The baby was like, wait a minute, what? everything was fine. And now my experience of what was happening is invalidated. Yes. And then that's just, I feel like, well, then does that make me feel bad? What's wrong with me that this is, that this is happening? I feel like it's kind of like the another analogy is that like, say you're on an airplane. I, I don't know if I used this analogy before, no, but no. like if I'm on an airplane as a passenger and the pilot comes out and says, hey, you know, there's a storm coming up. I wonder if anybody has any input on whether I should go above <laughs> the storm or around the storm. Right. I mean, the feeling I'm going to have is fear and like, and, and I'm, I'm not safe. This isn't safe. I'm expected to, to understand this plane when I have no idea how to do this. And so then th- that just could feed my negative self-understanding. Sadly, I think sometimes that happens to us. Our parents are just don't, don't know what to do or don't know how to handle it. And, and so then that, that message gets conveyed and then, and that can be a shame sort of foundation as well. That makes yeah. Sense. Out of that shame foundation, when you describe it like that, let's kind of maybe re-anchor it a little bit. So we know that it gets developed very early in our lives, but mm-hmm. part of it is the meaning that we attach to it. So the shame is maybe an I am statement yeah. and it's developed funny enough, paradoxically almost for us to create a meaning, we have to have some understanding of what's going on around us. And since we're egocentric, you know, growing up as children, it's always about me. This is happening. My parents are getting divorced because I'm not a good boy. But if I'm not a good boy, that allows me some control. Maybe I can do good things to keep my parents together. Maybe I can overachieve, or maybe I can be mischievous and get them to come together and parenting me. But it's all in the service of trying to manage my environment, but I own it that way. And it's unconscious again. And it's emotionally activated and re-experienced. That's what shame does. And it's typically trauma-based. And everything in our lives, everything is in the service of trying to avoid re-experiencing that sense of who I am. I'm undeserving or I don't have value or there's something fundamentally wrong with me or whatever it may be. And keeping others through our compensatory behaviors, like you said, from seeing us that way because we don't want them to see us and recognize that, yeah, it's really true. Mm-hmm. Talk about some of the things you've heard people say about their own shame. What are some of the things that they're defining themselves as? I think it takes a while to get to it sometimes. I think sometimes if people come come to seek help or seek the therapeutic relationship, I think sometimes it takes a little bit to whittle that down because yeah. you know the, the, the therapeutic relationship is a microcosm of the relationships in, in, in our lives. And so initially, I think we want, you know, people want to come off. I know you want to come off looking good right. you know, to, to the person. But then I think that, that when that, the recognition, if there is that ability to kind of remove some of that, I don't, I'll use the word mask or use that superficial yeah. element to be able to see inside and then feel validated, like, hey, look, you know, I, I hear you. I hear you. I'm, I partner with you. I, I understand what you're saying. You don't have to go through this alone. You know, I get it. I think that those are, those are the, the great things. What I feel like I see people consistently, and I kind of have it written into four categories, withdrawal, that people like have sort of a withdrawal that they have a little bit of an attack on themselves, a little bit of an avoidance, and a little bit of, uh, of I think, attack of others. And some people, I think, maybe maybe express their shame in, in these four different ways. And mm-hmm. I don't know if they're really just like, oh, here's this, here's this, here's this. But like, I think that different people may just do one or whatever. Like I may withdraw by like, you know, slumping my shoulders and just kind of standing to the side and not looking people in the eye. Or I may withdraw by just being so afraid of rejection that I never engage in in relationships or friendships at all. Or maybe like I attack myself by being a little bit self-differential humor or kind of like saying things about myself or self-neglect or all the way to 
self-harm or you know non-suicidal in injury or things like that and i think all of the those those sort of different expressions are launched out of shame i really appreciate what you're defining right here because shame affects us both personally and relationally i think in our work what we get to do ideally is at first we get to do the within work with folks and then we get to do the between work you know in the relationships they have in their lives and oftentimes we focus on the on the between work i think prematurely because that work the between work with folks is governed by what's going on within myself and most of that is unconscious and part of therapy is making the unconscious conscious and becoming more mindful of what i'm doing so that that personal piece it's always typically fear driven and it can be you know risk aversive it can be self punitive like you're saying or maybe it can be you know maybe perfectionistic or highly organized or critical you know those are all of oneself but then that comes into relationships someone who's let's say someone who's shame based can be passive and they might be you know feeling like their needs are not that important they might allow mistreatment they might own responsibility that's not theirs. They might have abandonment fears, might walk around on eggshells. Or on the other side of that, we see that oftentimes in those that are, you know, in kind of in a domestic violence cycle where they become authoritative and controlling or directive, restrictive, abusive. Mm -hmm. Those are all, funny enough, ways that someone's trying to manage their shame, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's this experience of inadequacy. How do I do this? How do I keep people from knowing it? How do That's I survive right. this? How do I keep myself from feeling the pain of it? I'll do anything. And, and I think that's, that's, that's what leads to oftentimes this self-destructive behavior or what the things that you're kind of saying. And I think that the core issue of shame can be, I think it can have different sprouts or whatever. I think like it'd be like internal, of course, like I, how I view myself, but then like sometimes external that like I give all the power to the other person yeah. and then their evaluation or appraisal of me becomes more important of, than my own. That becomes, I think, a big deal. I feel like I see that, see that quite a bit. And another idea, like th this sort of, I think the term they use is reflected shame. And that's yeah. when like the family or the group or the entity that I'm a part of that I, be, I experience shame in that. Like that. So say for instance, if my brother does something that I don't like, then I'm experiencing shame for my group because I have such a lack of a boundary within that set situation. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes good sense. I like what you're saying here too. And, and I'm kind of reflecting back on what you said earlier. Therapy itself is a microcosm of what goes on in a person's life. What happens out there, you know, in the there and then in people's lives outside of therapy beautifully has an opportunity to emerge within the therapeutic relationship in the here and now. Mm -hmm. And Let's talk a little bit about how you use a therapeutic relationship to provide another set of mirrors for the person you're working with. You, you have an opportunity to listen for, and it's hard sometimes to pick it up. That's correct. But if we can have a listening ear for an I am statement buried sometimes within certain situations, oftentimes I will say, well, so if this is happening in your life and this happens here and it happens here and it kind of originated here, I wonder what that might say about you. I'll pause for a second. And then I'll say, that must mean that I am what? Kind of seeding them into, and before they, you know, typically they kind of dropped it into that place and go, you know what? I don't think I'm deserving. Or yeah. I feel like maybe I was responsible. Mm -hmm. And as you begin to think about that, it's almost like all the files of card catalog kind of come into place. And they begin to think about all these situations where that theme, that shame-based theme explains what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And just a little quick story. I had a guy, I was working with a guy, his father committed suicide, 47 year old guy, 
tough guy, solid guy. And his father committed suicide when he was seven years old. And we were talking and we were processing it through and he just stops. And he says, Graham, what kind of son must I have been for my dad not to want to stay around and raise me and live with me and be my father? I must not have been enough. That was his, the woman in the group, I'm not deserving. His was, I'm not good enough. Mm. And as he said that, he said, Graham, I'm, I'm noticing all these things in my mind right now, all these errors in my mind. He's a multimillionaire, multiple businesses, has all these things. And he said, everything I do in my life, I'm realizing is to try and prove to myself and others around me that I am enough so that they won't leave me. Because if I'm not enough, people are going to leave me. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's what you're talking about here. We get to recognize that therapy gets to bring these things out and we can listen for it. We also get relationally, don't we, as therapists? To help them begin to have a corrective emotional experience by maybe even feeding some things back like, hey, really? Was that really? And we begin to challenge it. Talk about how you use the therapeutic relationship for that corrective emotional experience to challenge that paradigm and maybe introduce something new. That's so many good, like, I, I, like that whole deal of like, I've talked about like holding up a mirror, like, like yeah. see yourself, see yourself and what, what you're saying. Can, how do you assess that? Like, I feel like that's a big, a big part of it, of that holding up that, that mirror. Let, let me tell you back what I'm, what I'm getting from what you're saying. Yeah. And I, I think like that, I feel like if it's many times people have never been heard and especially this part of the, of the thing that you've worked diligently to hide from everybody and now here's this moment of like uh oh the drapery's open <laughs> and that, like okay somebody's in there what am i going to do now and if that's we got to be careful like as as the providers i mean we're in a sacred spot with these folks that's and I, I feel like something that i've kind of learned is this sometimes i, I don't know if you, i have a pretty like rubbery kind of face i can get kind of kind of you know uh, like over i have to monitor myself i think like if i get too you know it what it can be a, maybe off-putting to the client I have to be, I feel like I kind of have to monitor my facial expression because of the attunement that if I think like if I react too highly to someone saying something like what you described, then maybe I'm somehow sort of tacitly affirming what they're saying. So I feel like I need to just truly authentically, and then to continue to check in with the person, you know, how are you feeling as you talk to me now? What are you experiencing as you share this with me? Kind of like just checking in on this sacred place. I'm in your sacred place. Is it okay that I'm here? And how, how are you doing with me here? You know? I really like that. I think that's a very respectful and very honoring. You know, what, the way you framed it for us today is one, this is unconscious. Two, everything they do in their lives is in the service of not re-experiencing that within themselves and not letting other people see that part of themselves. That's a foundational, what we I refer to as kind of a cornerstone, the most important stone in a building. Everything lines up with that. Yeah. And they have lived their whole lives in that shame-based place. And little do they know all they've done to protect it. And it is truly a sacred space, their most vulnerable and tender space. And you're saying, thank you for letting me in. Mm-hmm. Thank you for entrusting this to me. It's a privilege to be here as we talk about this. How are we doing? How are you feeling? Mm-hmm. But there's also a space in that sacredness in the, in where, where we get to come in and maybe kind of gently nudge it and say, maybe that was a meaning that you assigned to something early on. Mm-hmm given the things that you experienced in your environment or what you were told or what, what you as a wee little boy or wee little girl didn't know that you were developing a belief around it. And I wonder if it's ever been true. And you begin to kind of nudge and maybe kind of chip away a little bit of, is it really valid? Mm-hmm. And is it worth kind of holding on to here? That's part of the therapeutic piece I'm seeing you do. 
I love what you're saying that, that kind of that a little nudge because I think if you come in and say, Oh, that's ridiculous. That would never, you, know, you just, we just can't do that. But like to say, no, what if I said to you <laughs> that this might not be you know accurate? How, how would, how would that land on your ears? You know, kind of thing. Yeah. I love what you're, how you're saying that, that kind of chipping, chipping away at that thing that they've held on to since, since he was nine or whatever. Just, I mean, right. if I've held on to something since I was nine, I'm, I'm not going to give it up, you know, right away, yeah. you know, and little do I know that I'm even holding on to something yeah. and we begin to see kind of its impact in our lives. Yeah. You know, there's a number of areas we can go. I'm going to, I'm going to open this up to you. I know you've got some great experiences. What else do you want us to know about shame that would be helpful for our listeners to kind of have as a, as, as a walk away and to be able to hold what else you got? There've been a couple of research studies done on shame and disgust and mm. the similar reactions that people have like sort of physiologically and emotionally. And I just thought that that was interesting about the physiological re reaction that shame is sort of a disgust with self almost huh. because disgust, that, that sort of experience of disgust is a sort of a thing that, that is helpful because, you know, we see something gross and it could have a germ attached to it. So therefore we want, we're, we want to be revolted by it and get away from it. But then sadly, many of us that may be experiencing some sort of almost like an internal disgust, like yeah. I, I want to get away from myself or how do I escape myself? Because I feel like this is this gross thing I have inside myself, whatever that is. And I feel sadly that sometimes our society, that not just the messages or the attunement or lack of attunement from our parents, it may, may be a foundational thing, but I think from our society, I mean, I think about LGBT people that hear from their church or their place of worship, you know, that, that they're negative or no good, or society says that, or oh, yeah. women, whatever, you know, just these messages. And how do we counteract that? I really like that. I think it's worthwhile to bring in disgust. You know, if you can just even imagine when we say the word disgust, what image comes up, you know, and what do you see? Have you seen people look at you in a disgusting way? Or maybe you've seen people look at others in a disgusting way. Maybe you've looked at someone in a disgusting way yourself or others. Mm -hmm. And there is something just egregiously intolerable, you know, about disgust. It's beyond my ability to be accepting of it or for it to be okay. And I think you're right. Shame is based in that kind of egregious based part of ourselves that is just even hard to look at without some sense of disgust or something negative coming into it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. One other thing I was thinking about is that this, this is kind of academic and geeky, but like this, you know, the Eric Erickson stages of development. I don't know if, yeah. if that's something that's familiar, you know, that trust versus mistrust and then sure. autonomy versus shame and just how early that is and how core that is. And then how do I balance a little bit of that? I, you know, like, how do I recognize that I can be autonomous, but then I do have some limitations or, or then are my limitations the, the driving factor here as I, as I set the next stages of my life, you know? And so it's an early, early core experience. And I think that his theories, which have been affirmed by some of our, our awareness of neuroscience that yeah. have affirmed how core this this issue of shame is. Uh, yeah I, I i really appreciate you kind of academically geeking out here with us because i think it's relevant i think there are you know with Brene brown and what she's saying but also in what the brain is saying and the neurological findings that you're sharing with us the studies around shame and disgust eric erickson named it at a very early age we're all going to become autonomous and kind of comfortable in the world and have a sense of ourselves so we can get busy doing what we have the ability to do or we're going to be in a shame-based place, what we're talking about today. And it is very early, typically very early ingrained. It can happen later on, but more times than not, it's in our earliest development that becomes pretty profoundly foundational in controlling other things that we do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. 
And I think too, like back to kind of the parenting and the familial thing that I think we tend to put sometimes a lot of emphasis around shame issues around the parents neglect or the parents Mm -hmm. mistreatment or meanness to to a child. But then sometimes I feel like the overprotective, like I'm a helicopter. It's almost like I'm saying, I don't trust my own child to be themselves. So I need to make the, the every decision. We I feel like it's important to encourage our you know parents to say, hey, let 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 the child make some mistakes and let them yes. kind of figure it out for themselves. And look, that's 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 autonomy building and trust building and within themselves, they get skills themselves. So what say we say that? What say at its very best, a parent wanting to be protected becomes helicopter or tiger, whatever you know word we want to use to describe it, kind of metaphor to describe it. But they, 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 they communicate the world is not a safe place. So the child believes that maybe I'm not safe, you know, or maybe it's, I, I don't have the potential to be competent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I am shame-based in the ability to always need to be protected. Mm-hmm. So I think on the flip end, I'm powerless in a world that's scary. And I'm, because I never developed some of the skills or, yeah. So I think, I think on the flip side, that can also be a role that can happen in place. Hey, Reagan, just, you had mentioned a little bit earlier in a, in a talk, and I want to just kind of highlight it so people can maybe become more aware of and mindful of maybe some of their own responses to shame. Again, it's unconscious. We don't know what we're doing, and we're doing our very best to manage something that is unconscious, but it's very controlling. You mentioned the idea of our responses and, and the various kind of responses we can have to shame. Can you go back over those before we begin to wind down today? What are some sure. of the responses to shame? Sure. I could even maybe try to put it in a smaller nutshell so that because to get that I think that maybe three responses that okay. we move away, we move away from the shame, but that movement away is that I, I am going to move away, that I want to disappear. I want to try to be as perfect as I can so I never get called out for any mistake. And then I'm unnoticed. I can blend into the wall, kind of like that animal that just you know s- sort of freezes in a way. I think that's that yeah. that movement away. I want to I want to disappear, that that kind of thing. Then the movement toward. That like, okay, I'm going to move toward this because I want to move into a, like a relationship, whatever somebody else wants from me, I'm going to give it. And yes. I think that you mentioned a little bit about like a domestic violence situations yeah. where, you know, I'm going to give this other person whatever they want, no matter how badly they treat me, you know, that's just, I'm going to give them what they want because I am invalid. I am inadequate. And therefore I need this person to, no matter how badly they treat me, because I'll never be able to have anyone in my right. life like this again. And so I need to be what it, so that's that, that kind of, we could categorize it, I guess, is moving toward. And then the, the third way might be moving against, which is that sort of violence. And I think sometimes people that, that, that ended up maybe overly aggressive, maybe on the other side of the equation of domestic violence, that there's such a, a shame and that the person feels unworthy to be. And so I have to like beat, beat someone or yes. be cruel to someone to get them to stick with me or to, yeah. you know, to somehow connect with me. And I use that sort of aggression to do that. So those are sort of like three general categories. And I think like sometimes when I hear that and I think, oh, gosh, I'm not a disappearing person, but maybe maybe I am a little bit. Maybe I maybe I put my head down and maybe I I, I don't look somebody in the eye because of, of what I have. It doesn't have to be that I'm hiding in a closet. You know what I mean? I think it can show up in different ways. I think that all this is a continuum. And I think that shame appears in all of our lives in one way or another. Um, some a little bit, maybe more function. I can function around it. Sometimes it's debilitating to me. Yes. Yeah, sometimes it's debilitating. Well, I have really enjoyed this time. I want to, I know we're kind of winding down for today, but uh, we could be going on and on. I think there's some great things around this and your points are, are extremely well taken. Regan, I would love folks to be able to find out more about you, what you're doing, and uh, how can people connect and find out more about you? Oh, well, I mean, my I, I work at the University of Tennessee in the College of Social Work there. And this is 
we really try to teach you know students the best practices that that they can because it's funny the students that come in a lot of times they they want to just be you know the fix it person you know and and I think yeah. then we kind of have to look at our own shame there like okay what am yes. I what am I trying to overcome here by fixing everyone else and so so that we 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 encourage all that that students to explore themselves and to t- talk through some of those things I love social work and I love this whole process of our students kind of figuring themselves out along with trying to figure out how to be with other people. And that's what, that's what I think this is to be this, be with other people. You know, I think that really is great. I know you do some great training in the program there. I also know that you do a trauma treatment certification. Give us a little 411 on that. Oh, we're trying to develop different postgraduate type of, you know, information type things. And one of the things that we've developed is a trauma treatment postgraduate certificate. And if you go to the website at the csw.utk.edu, then you'll be able to see where the the trauma certificate is. And it, maybe you're out there and you're thinking, gee, I'd, I'd like to go become a, a social worker. I'd like to be a therapist. You know, maybe you could, get, could come to our college. And we have a, a, in the program, we have a trauma treatment certificate that helps folks learn stuff while they're in the program. It's a certificate that you can specialization you can get within the degree. Really good. Really good. You know, Reagan, I, I always enjoy being with you. I love your mind. I love your passion. I love your enthusiasm. You're just a, a, a just a tremendous man and, and you're doing some great things, you know, you. just in, in teaching folks and in, in working with folks. I know that shame is, is such a central part of our lives. Like you said, on the continuum, some of us can kind of function around it. Some of us really get tripped up by it. And also some of the emotions that can tend to go around it. We, we have an understanding or an opportunity rather to really work with it in a way that can be corrective, that can almost like a hole on our sidewalk that we have as a vulnerability. And we keep tripping in over and over and over again. We can fill that in. We can patch that up mm-hmm. so that life doesn't become defined by or driven by. So I so appreciate the work you're doing, the information you gave us today. And thank you so much for your input. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Graham. I really am just honored to be here. I, I, it's so funny. I was a big, I have been a big fan of this, of this podcast. I listen to it when I'm out running and, and now here I'm getting to be a part of it. It's like, a, it's really, really cool. And I just think like kind of what you were wrapping up there that like, they're really, this is a hopeful discussion. I think we had a, we yes. spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the difficulties and struggles with people that we experience shame, but it's hopeful. I mean, you know, we talk about that, that nervous system stuff. There's this fancy word neuroplasticity. The yes. brain can change and it changes in relationship. And so if we've got a good friend, if we've got a therapist, if we can let somebody in, then we can feel that affirmation that maybe we've been longing for to realize that this thing that I've been ashamed of, really, there's no need to. It, we're all human and we're all in this together. That's I really cool. like that. What 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 a great way to wind down our show. The one of there is hope because the, the brain is, you know, the neuroplasticity of those things are fire together, wire together. And we can rewire these things. And typically it's done best in a relationship, because that's where these things first started. And in a therapeutic relationship where there's understanding of this and someone can help walk us through these things and see these things safely. And so what you're encouraging people right there, I think maybe giving a gentle nudge to is consider identifying these things in yourself and come into a therapy with somebody who can really help you identify and walk through these things and put a new ending on a very familiar beginning. And I think that's a great way to wind down. So thank you so much again for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great. Yeah, I also want to thank you to our listeners for joining Reagan and me today. It's always great to have you with us. And what a great topic for today. You know, regarding today's episode, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other podcasts can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. 
So check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash BHT and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show and we'll look forward to having you with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.